Good morning. My name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And I, I have this feeling of a perfect storm kind of brewing in me. This is this is a this is a fascinating text, or this is a fascinating concept. And I was just thinking as we were worshiping of a of an old hymn from 1917 by a name by a man named Frederick Lehman and I want to just share that a few phrases of that before we enter into the text and it says could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It's a hymn about the fact that it is an endless thing for us to write back. Oh, I'm supposed to go back. I kind of wanted to just hide in the shadows, but back up a little bit. Is that good? Thank you. It would have been better, would you, would you not see my face? I told the guys before, I probably am pale enough to shine by myself. But I feel like this text is a perfect storm bringing you back because there's three things going on right now. There is the fact that I am preaching on the kingship of Christ, which is huge. Number two, me and Dave just got back from this conference Usually when we prepare for sermons, we kind of have this, I like to think of it as we're filling a pitcher with water during the week from a, a fountain or from a tap, and then each sermon is us just taking from that pitcher and pouring it into a glass. When you go to a conference the week that you're preaching, you feel like you've filled your pitcher from a fire hydrant, because you keep holding it up, and every day something new is shooting the pitcher back onto the ground. And the third thing is that I am trying to preach this all within three pages of notes. So, I have not been nauseous before a sermon in many, many years. And I was nauseous standing there worshiping, just to give you a feel for the reason for the passion that might come out in this sermon. And one of the other reasons for the passion is this morning in Egypt, there was a bombing that killed around 30 people. 30 people that were on their way to worship just as we are now. 30 people who are now with King Jesus, happy and whole. And that, that brings a seriousness to this topic. The fact that those 30 people walked to church that morning expecting nothing more than to be able to worship their God and celebrate with friends and family the reality of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem. And that in a, min- in a moment, it all changed. And that also reminded me of one of the major points that stuck in my head during the conference. It was a question that Don Carson asked the people concerning their greatest fear. And as he was preaching from Galatians chapter 4, he told them what Paul's greatest fear was. Paul's fear for the Galatians was that he 
had labored over them in vain, that he had failed them. And so this morning, as I preach to you on the kingship of Christ, on the reality that we serve a king who is ruling and reigning and living and awesome in the oldest sense of the term, know that we do not come before you in a matter that is flippant or foolish or lazy. I come to you dead serious today about this topic because his work is so important. Because his prophet, he has known us so well, and yet he has loved us perfectly. As priest, he has healed us, seen our ailments, and redeemed us. And as our king, he leads, he guides, He is great, and yet, he is close. His kingship is so radically different than anything that we can expect, anything that we would perceive when we think of a king, but it is so utterly consistent with everything we need. So lest we live in fear or laziness, Let's look to our king. And I'm going to share with you some psalms to get us going. And then I want to take you through a text that I feel it is one of the most important texts on the kingship of Christ. So a few verses that you can hear and think upon and and meditate upon later. The first is Psalm 99 verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Salah. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Psalm 10, 16 through 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of earth may strike terror no more. He is a glorious king. 
And as we think upon the kingship of Christ, one of the images that often bears bears greatest depiction in our mind is recognizing him as ruling and reigning, wrapped in white, as mighty and powerful, sitting in judgment, and that we are approaching him meekly, small, out of place before him. But the glory of Christ does not cease there as king. It continues. It continues and is revealed beautifully in our text today. Would you pray with me as we read it? Lord God, we, I, am inadequate to preach on your kingship. To talk about your, your jobs and how you do them. You do them so well. And you do them in such a way that we, we should just be surprised, awestruck for your love and for your mercy and grace. Change us through your word today and help us to see you and love you in a new and life-changing way. And help us to take this word today and keep it going throughout the week. This message is not for today. It's for tomorrow, tonight, Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Let your kingship transform each day this week. Amen. The text that I wanted and that I'm going to share with you is the text that you should expect today. It's the text on Palm Sunday. In Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, we read of Jesus and his disciples, and it says this, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away. And found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Why are you doing? What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. No text in all of Holy Scripture has taught me more 
about Christ and the king that he is than this one. Because this text tells us of the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. A description of the king who would come. The king who would come humble and mounted on a donkey. And we should ask, what does this teach us about the king that he was? It teaches us something amazing. But to understand that, we have to remember what things were like back then. That's not too different from today. You see, if a king was entering into a town, he would not usually enter on a baby donkey. That is not a very strategic thing to do, to get onto a donkey who is young and ride that into a town. When you are doing that, you are putting yourself in harm's way. You are putting yourself on something that will potentially be lazy and slow. And so when Jesus rides in upon that, in upon that donkey, he says something very specific. He says, peace. Peace. Most kings would enter into towns in which they planned to reign, in which they expected to be received as king on a war horse. Something that would evoke their strength something that would communicate their power, something that would be seen and feared. But not Jesus. Jesus comes humbly, meekly, because he is glorious, yet he is meek. He's quiet and he is humble. And I say this has taught me more about Jesus' kingship than anything else because of how Jesus has not ceased to be meek. He is not this day reigning and ruling any differently than he did that day. That to this day, when he pursues us, when he seeks us, when he calls to us to come to him, he does not stop you where you are and say, stop what you're doing and listen to me. He comes gently, so gently, through the Holy Spirit. He calls to us through his word. He tweaks and changes our hearts. He draws us. He invites us. He is loving. He is gracious. He is kind. And yet he is king. Kings do not have time for that. Kings do not have the patience to do that. And yet, this is the king we have. A king that would not say to us, you have not heard my call, therefore I am done with you. He is the king that took seven years from that first call with me to finally know that his message had gotten through. He is so gentle and meek. And this passage is our reminder that Christ, as king, he's not too good for us. He's not so far from us. He is not impatient with us, but that he is near and that he loves us dearly and receives us warmly. I have seen this truth played out again and again in my life through my brothers. 
I've preached before many years ago on a chapter in Hebrews that spoke of how Christ receives us as a brother, but Christ's reception as a brother is very similar as he receives us as a king. I have two older brothers. One is 11 years older than me and one that is six years older than me. And my brothers were never too old. They were never too busy. They were never too smart, too married, too many kids, or too different for me. They were there. They would come to my level to help me. And Christ is no different. He is so far from, moved from us. He is the God-man, the king of all creation. He's the creator of the heavens and earth. And he has made us and our pathing, our passing, our time on this earth is as a breath to him. And we are not too little. We have never walked alone as we say. He has been there for us. And to be that, you have to be humble. And you have to be meek. And that, that teaches me how I need to be. And I hope you see that too. That seeing a king like Jesus act like that towards you is not a reason for you to say, well, then I don't need to be that way. This should be a reminder for us that we must follow his meekness and his gentleness. That we must look at the kingship of Christ and say, oh Lord, as your subject that you love so dearly, help me to be gentle and meek. But I want us to know as we follow our king that his meekness is not weakness. Because the triumphal entry does not end there. Jesus doesn't just make his way into Jerusalem to show that what he is and who he is and his authority in Israel. He does two things when he enters and when he arrives. First, there's, it says that they went back to Bethany. But the next day, he comes back and he's hungry. And the first thing he does is he goes to a fig tree. And when he found there was nothing on it, he cursed it. So even though he is meek, know this. He has authority. And as he encounters you in life as your king, if he comes into your life and sees no fruit, he's not just going to say, that's okay. Maybe eventually. He looks on that as a problem. And so the fruits of the Spirit are very real and very important for us as a people. That if we have received Jesus as King, that we need to show that Jesus reigns as King in our life. But then we have to recognize that that means that he's going to do the following. That he will cleanse the temple as he did next. That after he had cursed the fig tree and walked towards the temple, and he saw all that was happening within it, that showed the symbols of religion, but not the heart of religion, that he flipped over tables and he challenged everyone, saying, what is my temple for? It is not for money changers. 
and for the selling of pigeons and all these other things that were there, but that it was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And so do not look on this text and say, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, is Christ, te- is Christ treating me any different? No. He enters you as temples, as members of his church, as believers, and he will seek to turn over every table and change every aspect of your life to display more of his kingship and more of his authority. Jesus displays his strength and his authority by both assessing what is true and correcting what is wrong. Would he not do so more in our lives? And lastly, we find, and this is a little similar to my first point, but it's, it's important. It's that his greatness has not made him distant. We talked about him being meek before him, being gentle and being humble, but it's also to note that as king, he is not distant. Because that's what a king communicates to me. That's what the title of king or even a crown communicates to me. I think of someone inaccessible. I think of someone away, a someone, someone that potentially is cut off. Recently, my wife Hannah and I were watching a series on Netflix called The Crown. And The Crown is the story of the transition of power from King George VI after World War II to Queen Elizabeth II and her subsequent rule, the beginning of that rule. And all throughout this TV show, the reality of separation and disconnection is revealed. The the reveal is that the crown is not necessarily a blessing for them. That it was a curse on each of them. That it was, that it was trouble. We see Queen Elizabeth enter into her queendom with a poor education. She doesn't know much. She's expected to meet with all these political figures. And yet all she had been educated in were queenly things. Other kids got to go to school. Other kids had a higher than, I believe, a very low education in math. I want to say second grade. Other kids had done reading of the classics, had done all of these things, but she was only educated in government and queenly things. She was forced as queen to give up her home that her husband had worked on because it wasn't suited to their family. She was forced to give up her husband's name because it would create controversy and issues within the kingdom of England. She had damaged relationships with her mother, her children, and primarily her sister because she had to act as queen and not as herself. More and more in the television series, what is communicated is that Queen Elizabeth has become something different, something distant, something not even the people who would be closest to her even loved. Because her husband was not the king, he was a prince. Because her sister couldn't choose who she'd want to marry because it would look bad for the crown. 
because she needed her mother more than her mother would have time to be free and mourn the death of her husband. And so as we and I looked at that, I can understand how the title of king could communicate distance. And in reality, we are programmed to think distance. We are Americans. We hate kings. We rejected a king because of taxation, the demands, and the distance, and the difficulty found in him. When George Washington was presented with the prospect of being referred to as a king or as his, manage, as his majesty, he rejected it outright. And so kings are negative to us. But as we look at Christ, let us remember, he is the king in the truest sense. He is the king in the sense that we need. He is the king in the way that our hearts demand. Our politics as a nation reveals our desire to have kings. But Christ reveals something better. Because though he is king, he is not distant. He is near and he is active. And his activity is our upbuilding. He doesn't just enter as king with expectations. He enters as king and gets to work. Is he confrontational? Yes. But he is also gentle. He expects fruit and he will cleanse the temple. But he will do so in a way that leaves you recognizing that this is better. That this is best. And his gentleness means that we need to slow down and listen. We need to slow down and take assessments. We need to slow down and we need to hear from him through prayer and through his word about what in our life, in our lives, is not showing the world who, is, who our king is. In one of our sessions, in one of the sessions that I went to, we are given the opportunity to not hear, not just hear big breakout sessions, but small groups as well. And I went to a session about connecting Sunday to Monday through Friday. And one thing that the speaker said was most important for us is the aspect, and he had this phrase called gospel plausibility. Gospel plausibility. And he said, this is key to our daily lives as believers. And it's the reality that when people look at us as Christians, do they actually see and think the gospel's true in their life? Do they actually look at our lives and say, oh yeah, that, that's a real thing. It's changed them. Or do they hear us talking and hear us saying things and have no expectation that we would believe at all. That if we were to share with them about Jesus or invite them to church, that they would be shocked and surprised and say, oh, didn't even realize you were a Christian. And that is to our shame because if our lives don't reflect who our king is, this is where the nausea come in, comes in. We need to be afraid. We need to be afraid because 
Being a part of a kingdom is not just being part of a kingdom by word alone. It's through obedience. It's through hearing what the king expects, seeing what his kingdom looks like, and saying, how too must I walk with you in that? And if you're wondering, you know, is the gospel plausible in my life? I would just ask, slow down and listen. Listen to him. Read his word and listen. When sin comes up in your life, when you fail, when you get angry, when you have the opportunity to love, take those opportunities. Take those opportunities. Because the king you serve will be revealed through who you are, what you say, and what you do. And what king you're revealing is the question you must ask yourself. Every day, I try and have that set before me. And one of the most important ways that I can reveal that now in this season of life is my interaction with Hannah and Sadie. What I do for them, what I do with them, and how I love and care for them reveals Christ's kingship in my life. When I am frustrated, how I react reveals who is king. My time and my happiness or Christ and their betterment. No, I didn't say their quote-unquote happiness. I said their betterment. When I choose what we do as a family, as I lead our family, Christ's kingship is revealed. And a day is coming when Christ will return in power and he will no longer come riding humbly upon the foal of a donkey. He will come as the lion and not the lamb. And whether that's his full coming or us approaching him, my anticipation is that I will step before Christ with a series of regrets. A series of regrets of, if only I would, set, would have said to Hannah at that point in our marriage, this truth. We would not have had those fights for that year. If I had only done this for that person, they might have treasured the gospel more. If only I had loved this person in this way, I might have shown you to be King Jesus in a better way. I anticipate having a list of regrets but the reality is, <laughs> so good, that as I step forward and that list is piling up in my head and my heart, that the truth that will come forth is not, Scott, man, this is your list? close one. No. That will not be the reception. The reception will be (sighs) son. Just as the father received the prodigal son, the son, you're here. Enter into the joy of my rest. And as Christ comes, I pray that you would be prepared. Not out of fear of his coming, 
but with the knowledge of his joy. Because that is the grace of the gospel, that he is coming, he is coming in power, and he is coming with the glory of the gospel, that he is receiving us in Christ, because that's what he sees. His son that has perfectly, perfectly known us and yet loved us, that he has seen our sin and died for it and made us whole, and that he rules and reigns over us, gently leading us in all the ways that we should be. Let us humble ourselves today and welcome our King. Each day, each day this week, and on forth, letting Him reign and rule over all frames of our lives. Pray with me. Lord God, You are King. You are King and there is no other. And we Humbly sit here recognizing the gap and realizing this gap is here because we put it there. That there was no separation. No separation. And that day by day, we often recognize the separation more than the closeness. So thank you for coming close to us. Thank you for being our king. And thank you for your gentle and humble and great leading in our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.